people are on holiday. Uh, I think Joe and Damon are watching online and Greg and Sue probably as well, all up at Belito morning. And Mel is still online, I'm not sure who else, but morning to all of you guys as well. Um, so last week, I started just a very little series. I just wanted to start the year off with laying a couple of foundations of what church is and what church is about and where we should be going. And I, I simply called this little series The Four Loves, the four things that the church should love. And I wanted to kind of look at four fundamental pillars of the church, the things that every church should love. And I'm not going to say that this is the definitive list of all the things that a church should do. I think you could come up with a few others or perhaps narrow it down to a couple less. But nevertheless, the four things that I wanted us to look at, the four things the Bible commands us to love. So last week we started with, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And we looked at the, the issue of worship and what do we worship and what is our heart given to. Next week we're going to look at love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole thing of loving the other, loving the one who is different and dealing with issues of mercy and that a church should have some um, involvement in acts of mercy. The week after that, we're going to look at the whole, for God so loved the world uh, that he sent his son and then sends us into the world. And we're to, in a sense, love the world, take the gospel into all the world and what that says about our mission in terms of making disciples. So we've got worship. And we've got mercy, and we've got mission. And this week, I want us to look at the other command that Jesus gave. You shall love one another. So just take a quick look around. These are the people that you're meant to love. Some of you are ready to leave now, because no, <laughs> I just can't, right? Love one another, because this then speaks to the formation of community. In church life, that we are gathered as a community. So we're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. If you want to turn there, it will appear on the screen in a moment. John chapter 13, let me remind you of what has happened in John chapter 13. The disciples have sat down with Jesus for one last final meal. He's about to tell them that he's going to die. He started the meal off by washing their feet, right? So the Son of God takes off his shirt, picks up a towel, and washes the smelly feet of Peter and James and John and the rest. Now they're sitting down to eat, and Jesus has announced to his group of closest friends that one of you sitting here will betray me. And you've got to think, what, what are the others going to do? What are the others going to think? They're all thinking, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? And Jesus hands over a piece of bread to Judas and says to Judas, what you need to do, go and do it quickly. And John tells us that the rest of the disciples all thought that Jesus was telling him, go and buy more bread. <laughs> and Judas gets up and leaves. And John, halfway through John 13, it says, and Judas left and it was night. And that's like a, almost like if, if, if this was a movie, it would be that the screen would dim and eerie music would begin to play. And just as Jesus has handed over a piece of bread to Judas, Judas will very soon hand over the bread of life to the priests. And as Judas leaves, Jesus announces, now I will be glorified. Let me read verse 30, chapter 13 from verse 31. When he, that's Judas, when Judas had gone, Jesus said, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself and will glorify Him at once. My children. I think other translations say little children. I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the crystal rose, you will disown me three times. Bit of a morbid passage, isn't it? But what's interesting is that you read, if you read, read a few verses earlier, that John, who wrote this book, he's leaning against Jesus when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And John says to Jesus, Lord, who? Which one? And Jesus says to John, not for all the disciples here, but Jesus says to John, the one that I give the piece of bread to. And Jesus then hands it to Judas. And I can imagine John in that moment, bit of a moment of shock. Judas? What? Really? No. Can't be. How on earth? And, and John is trying to put, pro, process this, this act of betrayal as Judas gets up to leave. And in this whole thing of John trying to process what's going on, and Judas has just left, and, and should we send someone out to stop him, Jesus? In all of this, Jesus then announces, glory. Now the glory comes. And I can think, to, uh, John thinking to himself, surely not. Surely this is, this is a bad moment. We've got people betraying you. And there's this betrayal and glory all going in in one place. And glory that is to be revealed. And, and then the announcement of Jesus, I'm leaving. And John must again be going, there's glory, there's betrayal. And now you're, now you're abandoning us. You're walking away. It's a lot for a very young John to take in. What is Jesus saying, going to say to John and to the others in this moment of betrayal and glory and abandonment? And he says this, when I'm gone, what is it that will bind you together? What is it that will hold you all in one place? And he says, here's what it is, that you love one another. That's what will bind you to each other, and it's what will bind you to me. Judas is gone. Jesus is about to go. You're left with this little group of 11 guys. What's going to happen to them? And we know that they become a community of faith that change the world. And how did that happen? Well, it happened by the grace of God. It certainly didn't happen because they were nice, good guys. It happened by the grace of God. But Jesus says, by this, the world will know that you love one another as I have loved you. So let's break that down this morning. Love one another. How hard can that be? Right? It, it should be the standard for every church. 
that every church should have church members that love one another. Now, some churches are all about truth and there's no room for love. And those churches are kind of hard and, and um, a little bit narrow sometimes. Some churches are, are, are all about programs and are driven to succeed. And it's all about success. And again, people get run over by the bus because we're going somewhere. Of course, other churches are all about love and there's no truth whatsoever. And they end up being candy floss, wishy-washy kind of churches. We're called to be the church that loves God, loves one another, loves our neighbor, loves our world. But what is love? Here's how one website describes love. Love is an intangible connection between two people that feels exceptionally good. So I don't know if you walked in this morning and saw me and felt exceptionally good. I mean, I saw myself in the mirror this morning and that's what I felt. I was like, oh feel so good now. Yeah? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that is necessarily the best definition of love that I've ever come across. Here's something a little bit better from a guy called M. Scott Peck. He was a psychologist in the 1980s. He was very popular. wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. I don't think he's a Christian, but I think he got this definition of love rather well. He says, genuine love is volitional rather than emotional. In other words, he says genuine love is a choice, not a feeling. He says the person who truly loves does so because of a decision to love. This person has made a commitment to be loving whether or not the loving feeling is present. True love is not a feeling by which we're overwhelmed. It is a committed and thoughtful Decision. Some of us would do well to take that definition of love into our marriages, into our homes. But it's certainly a helpful definition to have in light of the church and God's call on us to love one another. Because you may look behind you or in front of you and see the back of someone's head and go, I don't feel much love for that person. But we're called to make a well, maybe it's an irrational decision. We're called to make a decision to love. Jesus, on his final night with his disciples, says to them, things are going to change. I'll be gone. You'll be left. Here's what's going to hold you together. The decision that you guys make to love one another. That will form the basis and the foundation of this community. 50 years later, John is an old man. He's in his 70s, perhaps even in his 80s. And he writes a letter. And again and again in that letter, he says, Brothers, let us love one another. Again and again in that little letter. In fact, church tradition has it that when John got so old that he couldn't walk anymore, he was carried into church on a bed. And his sermon every Sunday was the same. As he was carried in, he would say to the congregation, Little children, let us love one another. The Apostle Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he calls us to a, this is, this is quite a long thing, calls us to a sincere brotherly love and to love earnestly from a pure heart. So a love that is sincere, earnest, and pure. And you just kind of go, how? How do we do that? I mean, again, just take a quick look around, right? These people, 
Really? Sincerely? Purely? Earnestly? I'm sure that the disciples were looking around the room after their supper, and they're looking and going, Peter? I mean, he's a loud mouth. How can I love him? And Thomas? Thomas is like the Eeyore of the disciples. He's always gloomy. Right? Go back to chapter 12. And he's like, oh, well, let's go with Jesus. He's going to die. We might as well die with him. And I'm going to love this guy? There's Matthew, the tax collector, working hand in glove with the Romans. And sitting next to him is Simon the Zealot. Simon is a freedom fighter who's fighting against the Romans and anyone who works hand in glove with them. And Jesus says to Simon and to Matthew, love one another. And Simon and Matthew look at each other and daggers are out. Really love him? And the rest of the New Testament becomes this collection of letters littered with expressions of how this love for one another works its way out. Serve one another. Forgive one another. Comfort one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. And for our church to function as a true gospel community... This is what needs to happen. Sadly, that's not always the case. In other churches, this is not about our church, right? In in many other churches, because you've never said this, serve me, because I'm a consumer. I'm here to have my needs met. Forgive one another, forgive him for what he just said, forgive her for what she just did. No, no, I'll hold a grudge if you don't mind. Discourage one another. That's a great one in the church. Discourage one another. Right? You leave church and like, oh, the tea was terrible. It was cold. Didn't have enough milk. There wasn't, the, the coffee wasn't, was not filtered. This, this, this. And we will, uh, look, we will pray for one another. Oh, Lord, please take him away. <laughs> right? <laughs> I say this, that when we look at our church, one thing that has stood out to visitors over the years is that this church seems to like each other. Someone who started attending our church just before COVID shut down made a comment to me, this is like two years ago now, he said, you know what, after church you had a braai and everyone stayed. And then he said, and what's amazing is they all actually seem to like each other. They wanted to stay. They wanted to talk. It's amazing. He says, that didn't happen in previous churches that we've been part of. Just this week, I was with someone who said, uh, also fairly new to the church, and saying, "Ah, this church, it's like a little family. Now, I must say this. COVID has interfered with things in the last two years. COVID has gotten in the way of community. And for me... One of the hardest things that I've struggled with as the pastor of this church over the last two years has been to see people drift. Drift from church, drift from one another. It's been one of the hardest things to see the church members drift apart. 
to find that on Sunday morning we can't gather, or not as many people gather, or people are nervous together, people are concerned together. In fact, initially, when we weren't even allowed together, remember those two months or three months, however long it was, we're just, just missing that eye contact on a Sunday morning was lost. And over the last couple of years, our home groups have shut down. We haven't been able to do church camp for two years. Keep your eye out for this. We're just looking for a date. It's happening. But bries and picnics fell by the wayside. All the fun events that we would do. A men's breakfast hasn't happened. Ladies' tea. Theology classes where we can discuss and and. and, and and wrestle with one another. These things that, these events that gathered the church and helped create and build community, lost. And it's easy to blame COVID, and COVID does need to take the rap for it. But there's a certain amount of stuff where I think we, I, have used COVID as an excuse to just not get back into that. And I said last week that the last few months of last year, we really focused quite hard on getting Sunday mornings back and, and making sure that Sunday morning is good, but it still feels like something is missing, doesn't it? And make no, no mistake, I still think, you can tell me I'm wrong afterwards, but I still think that we're a generally happy church, that we still generally like each other. But one thing that I'd love to see restored this year is just that strong sense of community and family that comes with sharing life together. But it's not always easy to do that. Because some people take a little bit more loving than others. Some people are just a little bit harder to love than you would want them to. At least that's what we think in our heads. But I think, to be honest, maybe it's more to do with our hard hearts than the other person. Because... It's not really that some people are more difficult to love. I mean, their mom loves them, right? You hope. I find that often it's just that our hearts are hard. And perhaps we find it difficult to love because of us and not so much because of them. And so here's Jesus saying, not only love one another, but love one another as I have loved you. And I have to confess that this morning, I like most of you. Now you're wondering, well, which is the ones that's not in the most? Is it me? Um, I might even be tempted to say, I love a few of you. I'm not going to say who. Kevin. I'll be honest, Kevin and I have shared a bed before. Um, I'm not sure that I can say, I love you like Jesus. Does Jesus lay on us a burden that we simply cannot fulfill? Is this just one more brick in our backpack of, oh, I've got to love like Jesus. How on earth can I do that? Is it even possible to love as Jesus did? Sam Storms preaches a sermon on this passage. Um, and he, he does, I, I, I've summarized his seven points and just highlight some of the points that he makes, where he says that Jesus showed love for his disciples by spending time with them, by being patient with them. Think of the amount of times. 
Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven? No. Lord, I can walk on water. Okay, give it a go. Lord, send them away. There's not enough food for them. You guys feed them. Patience. By persevering with them. By, he shows them love by teaching them the truth. He, teaches, he shows them love by praying for them. By revealing the Father to them. And of course, and supremely, giving his life in sacrificial death for them. And we're called to love one another as Jesus did. I mean, just consider this. Just before he says this, he has washed their feet. He has the Son of God taking on the form and nature of a servant and washing the feet of his ignorant and arrogant disciples, offering himself in service to them. Love as I have loved you. And we still got to go, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I want to wash anyone's feet here other than my own. How do we love like this? We can only love like this because we know that Jesus has loved us. And so no, we don't leave here today with another burden in the backpack of, oh, Christmas said I'd better, I'm going to try really hard to love that person this week. We leave here knowing that he has loved us and that his life has changed our hearts and that he has looked on us with pity and with kindness and with grace. And when we recognize how broken and flawed we are and how great his love must be towards us, then it becomes a little bit easier to look on the broken and flawed people around us and respond to them as Jesus has responded to us. We love because he has first loved us. John says this in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, Since God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. You hear that last bit? That God's love made complete in us. That others may see. Which leads to the last point this morning, right? That by this shall all men know. Love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know. The love of God is seen in us. There's a guy called Tertullian. All heard of him? Read his books? Thought so. Tertullian was one of the early church fathers. That's, what he's, that's the, kind of their title. Lived in the beginnings of the third century BC, uh, AD, right? One of, the, one of the great early church fathers. He's the first guy to coin the phrase the Trinity, to describe God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three that are one. And he lived and wrote at a time when opposition to Christianity and the church was was intense. There was huge persecution on the church. And Tertullian called himself an apologist, which is one who defends and defines the faith for the critics. He argues rationally as to why Christianity is a rational thing. He defends the faith against his critics. But Tertullian, who who was a philosopher defending the faith, was very quick to point out that it wasn't a particular theological or philosophical argument that would ultimately persuade pagans of the truth about Jesus. In other words, what he was saying was, no one will become a Christian by losing an argument. If you're wondering about how to convert someone to Christianity, unlikely that they'll come because you won and they lost. 
Rather, this guy who's got a big brain, who can argue rationally for the rationalism of the Christian faith, says it is the seemingly inexplicable love that Christians have for one another that initially baffled and finally captivated non-Christians. And in one memorable statement, Tertullian says this. He says, it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, see how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. Tertullian says, no tragedy causes trouble in our brotherhood. And the family possessions which generally destroy brotherhood among you, he's talking about outsiders and non-Christians who argue over who inherits what and who gets what and all the things and stuff that we have to have. He says the family possessions that destroy brotherhood among you create fraternal bonds among us. One in mind and body, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us, except our wives. Aren't you glad he put that last bit in, right? We can share anything, just not our wives. We don't share that. So if you don't mind, I'll pop around later today today and just borrow your beef roast for my lunch, because we hold all things in common, right? Here's Tertullian saying, here's how Christianity changed the world. Here's how Christianity changed the Roman Empire. Not by winning arguments but by their love for one another. They loved one another in a way that seemed completely foreign to the culture at the time. Selflessness shown to a watching, critical, hostile world was the difference. And we'll talk more about this in two weeks' time when we talk about the mission of the church. But we keep this in mind today, that the gospel transforms the world by what the world sees in us. So we're all truly inspired this morning after this wonderful sermon, right? We're going to be really loving this week. We're going to be full of affection for, toward one another. There's hugs and kisses. Ah, COVID. Um, there'll, be, there'll be Bluetooth high fives all around and we'll sprinkle pixie dust because, man, this is just... Mm. But do you notice how the passage ends? And Jesus says, love one another. Then he says, I'm leaving. And Peter says, great, then I'll come with you. And Jesus says, no, you can't come. And Peter says, but I want to come. In fact, this is how much I love you, Jesus. Forget about to the moon and back. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, really? Before the sun comes up tomorrow morning, you'll have denied that I even exist three times. And so harsh reality descends into this boldest of statements. And you kind of go, I wonder how offended Peter was by this. But this is our reality. We're just a little bit too much like Peter sometimes. I'll do it. I'll change. I'll be better. I'll love you. I love the church. And we barely get out the door and, oh, these biscuits are stale. The tea is cold. It's it's raining again outside. How frail and feeble we are. And again, it just points out to us that without him, we can do nothing. Without grace, we are graceless. Without his love, we cannot love. And to repeat, until we ourselves are aware of his great love towards us, 
of how truly unlovely we were and yet find that we are loved beyond measure, beyond what we deserve, we will not truly be able to love in return. It's only when we reflect on his patience toward us that we can express patience toward others. Just think of how much patience he has needed with you this week. How many times he should have just gone, you're done, and in patience. How much grace. When we consider his kindness towards us, when we contemplate his affection and affirmation for us, despite our undeserving status. And we reflect on that only then. Will we be able to love? I want to give you homework this week. It's like being back at school. Some very practical outworkings of this. First of all, I'm going to challenge you, simple thing, to read 1 John this week. The whole thing. All of it. It's five chapters. One chapter a day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're done. One chapter, it'll take you, even if you have to read with your finger, it won't take you more than a minute. Okay? I mean five minutes. Five minutes max, surely. And as you read each day, just keep looking and highlighting every time John says something about love. The love of God for you, the love that you should have for one another. And, and just this week, meditate on what that love looks like. So you got it? 1 John, five chapters, chapter a day. And go, right? Second thing I'd like to, to, to do today is I would, well, not today, but I would dearly like us to restart our home groups in the next two weeks. So there, there is, Stephen is running one from his home. It's online. Most of our other home groups have kind of fallen apart. Ladies group will be back and running in the next couple of weeks on a Thursday morning. But I would like to start and see if there's people who are interested in getting back to a midweek Bible study home group meeting. Um, whether it's a Tuesday night or a Wednesday afternoon because you're old and frail and can't get around at night. Or um, you can't get out of bed and so it has to be online. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like. But we're going to start home groups again. And so I'm going to put this... This wonderful work of art on the back table. Um, it's a house with a tree. And if you'd like to be part of a home group, then please write your name in this home. And we can then set up a home group to start again in these next couple of weeks. And let's work again at rebuilding community in our church. And then finally this morning, so that's two bits of homework, right? Number one, what are you doing? Reading 1 John. Good, some of you got that. Number two, what are you doing? You're writing your name on this piece of paper. This wonderful, you're autographing my artwork. Number three, this is a little bit scary to do, um, but I'm gonna, we're going to end with just a time of prayer together. I'm going to ask you to just gather in little groups where you are, and you don't have to pray aloud, because I know this is very scary for lots of people, so you can just sit quietly for two minutes, and if people want to pray aloud, great, if you don't want to pray aloud, then don't, um, and we're going to pray for some very specific people in our church this morning, and we'll put some photographs on the screen so you can see who and what we're praying for this morning. So hopefully that PowerPoint will appear eventually.
Great. Number one, please pray for Don Lund. Um, Don has shingles. And he's in pain. He's, in, he's, he's at it for the last three or four weeks now. Five weeks, I think. He um, is sleeping on a lazy boy in the lounge because he cannot lie in bed. Um, so he is in agony and just not doing well. So please pray for Don this morning. Then we're going to pray for Glenda. Glenda McGregor, who also has shingles. Can you believe it? She's got it on her shoulder and her arm. She says even wearing a shirt, having the shirt touch her arm, just sends her over the edge. She hasn't been out of her house for about two and a half or three months now. Can we please pray for Glenda this morning? Then we're going to pray for Dawn. Dawn broke a hip a year and a half ago, and then two weeks before Christmas, broke her other hip. She turned 87 on Tuesday. And she just said to me, Chris, I'm feeling old, feeling frail, feeling very tired. Can we pray for Dawn this morning? And then we're going to pray for Karen. Most of you don't know Karen. Karen is Chris's mom. Chris is at the back. He's the one putting these up on the screen. And Karen has cancer. And the end is drawing nigh. And she's, she's suffering. And she's struggling. We're going to pray for Karen this morning. We're going to pray for Chris as well. Um, just as he, as he faces the reality of what the next two, three, four weeks will bring. And so we're going to pray for those those four people this morning. And you can pray for anyone or anything else as well. But won't you just, just turn your chairs around and in groups of five, six, ten, whatever it is, doesn't matter. And if a couple of people will just lead quietly in prayer this morning, and then we'll, I'll come back here and we'll sing one last song and you'll know we're done.
Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that we've been able to gather, that we've been able to pray for one another. Lord, again, just to echo the prayers that have been offered this morning here, pray for those in need, for Don, Glenda, for Dawn, Karen, for Chris. Lord, may we know, may they know your grace that rests upon them. Amen. Once you stand, we'll sing our last song this morning. We're going to sing again, Grace on Top of Grace.
Father, as we leave, may we know your great grace with us. May we be aware of the deep and abiding love of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks, folk. Have a cup of tea. My wonderful picture is on the back table with Mark. Go put your name down. <laughs>